Amen. So we find ourselves at the beginning of a new book of the Bible. Since I've been here, we've gone through Matthew, we've gone through Colossians, we've gone through Daniel. It's just been so fun, really, for me to walk through books of the Bible with you, but I hope encouraging as well. And here we are at a new book of the Bible, the book of James. And I love the fresh beginning of a book because it's almost as though you're standing at the beginning of the mountain. You're at the foot of the mountain and you're about to start the ascent right up into it. And I love the book of James, even though it's small, it might be considered more of a hill. We still will climb it and walk it together. And one of the reasons that I like the book of James and why I think it's going to be a helpful study for us is that the book of James really has the rubber on the road about 100% of the time. I mean, the rubber does not leave the road. It is all practical. It is all certainly theological, great information, but he doesn't ever really come off the ground. He's not going to be sometimes like the Apostle Paul is when he starts going in theology and he starts flying 32,000 feet. James keeps it so close to the ground, so much practicality within this book. And there are so many themes throughout the book that are important for us to grasp onto. Themes like trials and testing. Themes like the rich and the poor, or taking care of other people, or faith, or taming our tongues, which is certainly difficult for probably all of us, or arrogance, or prayer, patience. There's so much within this little book of James that it's important for us to understand and to apply to our lives. And so as we begin this book together, there are really a couple important pieces that we need to make sure that we have straight before we jump into Uh, verses 2 to 4 specifically, but really who exactly wrote the letter of James and who the book is written to. I mean, just like any letter that you're going to send out, I know that writing letters is a little bit of a, a pastime, right? But if you're going to write a letter, there are two very clear pieces of information on that envelope, aren't there? On the top left, you have your information, your street address, and so forth. And then in the middle of the letter, you have who you're writing to. And so within the book of James, you really have that same thing. You have James. The the first word of the entire book is his name, which is how they would have written letters back then. James, and then he explains a little bit about himself, and then he writes to whom he is writing. So you have James, and then you have these 12 tribes in dispersion. But there are a few people named James in the Bible, aren't there? So who is this James? Who who is this one? Is this James the son of Zebedee? Or is this James, maybe, hopefully, probably, the brother of Jesus? So his readers, although he just writes his name without any other real information describing who he is, his readers would have known who he was just by saying the name James. They would have known who he was. I mean, if I say the name Cher... What face comes into your mind? If I say the name Elvis, you're not thinking of a blonde guy, right? You're you're thinking of Elvis with a leather jacket. Well, don't think of the later stage Elvis. He wasn't that white thing, whatever that was. Um, But the cool Elvis, right? The 50s, 60s Elvis. You you have a, a face that comes immediately to mind. You know who they are, right? And James would have been able to simply say his name and they would immediately have known who he was. And I think that the only real option, and this really is mostly uncontested by most scholars, that this James here is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Of course, they would have had the same mother, Mary, yet Joseph would have been James's biological father, whereas Jesus was conceived by 
the spirit of the Virgin Mary, Joseph simply being his earthly father. But take a moment and, and just consider what would it be like for James to grow up with big brother Jesus? What would it have been like? And Jesus would have outdone him in all the areas that matter, wouldn't he? I mean, just because Jesus was 100% God didn't mean that he could run faster than any other human being. So maybe James could run faster than him. Or maybe James was a better carpenter than him. Who, who knows? But Jesus would have outshined James in all of the areas that matter, specifically spiritually, right? I mean, I wonder if you've had the unfortunate circumstance of having that perfect brother or sister that always seemed to do everything right. I mean, it, my dad just happens to be here. Would you like to give testimony of your... <laughs> But when you think of that perfect brother or sister, they're the ones who do well in school, right? They're the ones who get the good grades. They're the ones who seem to be the athletic ones. They're the ones that mom and dad always seem to want to boast about. Or maybe you were that perfect brother or sister. We have all seen this. We have all seen, whether it's in our own family or somebody else, that there's this one kid that seems to have the spotlight And more than likely, James and his brothers and sisters would have felt that way about Jesus. I mean, don't forget what Jesus was doing as a young boy, right? Sitting with the rabbis, talking about how he's going about his father's business and all of these incredible things. You can imagine that poor James and the rest of the family saying something like, well, I'm going about my father's business, not talking about Joseph. You can imagine how that would have just struck a chord with them, right? They thought, what in the world? Is this guy talking about? But there's something interesting that we need to note about James's relationship with Jesus. And that although right here in the book of James, he refers to himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus, there was apparently a time where, G- where James did not believe Jesus was who he said he was. We know this from John chapter 7, verse 5, where it says, not even his brothers believed in him. Although James grew up with Jesus, saw his perfection every day, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the question is, how does James go from not believing in Jesus to suddenly believing Jesus and referring to him as his master, as though James is now the slave of his brother? In the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 7, Paul specifically says all of these people and groups of people that, that, that Jesus Uh, appeared to after his uh, resurrection. And in verse 7 of chapter 15, he says, and he appeared to James. So if he hadn't thought that his brother was something special before his high-profile death on the cross and burial, then certainly James knew, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, when Jesus appears to him, he knows for certain that his brother is who he says he is. His disposition toward both God there in verse 1, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. The ESV translates it servant. Your Bible might as well. But that word doulos is really better translated slave. James considers himself a slave of Jesus, a slave of God. He doesn't give any indication that his relation to Jesus gives him any more status than you or I can claim to have. He doesn't say, 
well, I'm not really a slave or a servant like the rest of you all. He doesn't say, well, my brother is the king of the universe, and in him all things hold together, so I can kind of ride on his coattails into heaven. There's nothing like that here. It's, I am a slave of Jesus. This is incredible. One author said, Christians committed themselves to Jesus as their absolute divine master, just as actual slaves had to swear unconditional allegiance to their human masters. And this is what James has done. I am a slave of Jesus. I am a slave of God. And so are we all who confess him. And so this is the author of the book. Yet who was this audience? Verse 1 says, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. And it's my view that these 12 tribes are a reference to the church. They would be the Jewish Christians, yet they have for one reason or another, we're not totally sure, they have been persecuted, and so they're dispersed. They're the dispersed church, mainly made up of Jewish Christians. And so this was a situation that James was writing into, which really gives us a great context to understand the book. Because as we're going to see in a few minutes, the immediate discussion is about trials. And so there's this dispersed church that has experienced persecution. They've experienced trial already. And so this is immediately what James is going to jump in. All of these Christians who have been persecuted need encouragement. One author said, Christians are a special people, but they are not a protected species. They're a special people. They're God's people, but they're not a protected species. And so the life of the Christian is not a life of ease. Nor is the life of ease the goal of the Christian life. We're funneled a bunch of lies by Christian televangelists that we should live our best life now and and, and all of these kinds of things and that the Christian life is essentially supposed to be easy. But it's kind of simple. That, That really you just have to have faith and you'll get money, you'll be well, and all of that. But the Christians that James is writing to are Christians who are struggling. They're hurting. They're looking over their shoulder, wondering who's going to be persecuted, who's coming for them. They're enduring a real persecution. You know that feeling of of riding a bike, and you're at the top of the hill, and you start going downhill, and you're just kind of free-falling? And everything's just good in those moments, right? Just cruising. Your hands are on the brake. Go a little slower. Go a little faster. You're not pedaling. Everything is really easy. Those brief seconds are fun, but those brief seconds of carefree cycling are nothing like the Christian life. The Christian life is like the other way. At the bottom of the hill, bike in first gear, slowly pedaling up the winding mountain. It is difficult. We experience all kinds of difficulty in life and often reference them in the way that James references them. Trials. It can be said across the board in this room right now, and I know for many of you, as I look out at you, that you have all experienced various trials. There's not anybody in here who has not experienced a trial which makes this so important and practical for us to understand. Another author said that James highlights that Christianity does not shelter one from any adversity. Christians will face Trials. And although we might know that with our minds, that we face trials like everyone else in the world, what the Christian has to keep in focus is that there is a purpose for your trials. That your trials are not empty. 
Trials are not vain. They're not meaningless events that come into your life without a purpose, but that trials are a vital tool used in the hand of God to give us something very specific that we see within the text this morning, that trials are used by God to give you steadfastness or endurance that leads to maturity. And so this morning we'll see the varied nature of trials, the known fruit of trials, the full effect of trials, and then the radical response to trials. And that's all on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along with that outline. But first, the varied nature of trials. Look at verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We're going to come back to this idea of counting it all joy later on in the sermon, but notice that the Christian is going to meet a variety of trials. The idea here is of a great spectrum. Sometimes my wife will bring home, um, she'll have plans to repaint a room, and so she'll bring home this like massive key ring of swatches. You know what I'm talking about? All those different colors, that entire spectrum of colors. Now, in truth, I'm colorblind, which makes my opinion totally valueless, Worthless. I don't know why she asks for my opinion on what color to paint a room. She painted the most recent room tan, she says, but it looks completely gray to me. But she brings home this spectrum of colors and expects my opinion on it, but she shows those swatches, color after color, slightly different than all of the rest. And just like those swatches show all of the shades of the variety of color, throughout our lives we're going to encounter the shades of all kinds of trials. That it's not going to be one specific trial. It's going to be many shades of that kind of a trial. And then many shades of this trial. And many shades of this trial. Just as in many shades of blue. The many shades of trial will all endure. James knows that we're going to encounter this. He knows that his current audience is experiencing this. That they're in the throes of trial. But the clear implication is that God is the one who is bringing this spectrum of trials into our life. God does not bring temptation into your life. God does not lead you to sin. But God certainly brings and allows trials into your lives. Trials are a part of God's plan for every single one of you. None of you are going to have the constant experience of riding a bike downhill. That's not the way it's going to work. God has trials planned for you. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He said, don't even count this as something strange. This should be normal for the Christian to experience trial. Trials are not strange to the Christian. The Christian is accustomed to trials, a variety of kinds of trials, that spectrum and the comforting piece of knowledge that we can have as we encounter them is that they are from God. Think of a couple biblical examples of people who suffered and went through trials and how they responded. I mean, think of somebody like Job. Everything is taken away from Job. His kids are killed. His stuff and his animals all gone. And what does he say? He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Or you think of somebody like Joseph in the book of Genesis. He has that famous line to his brothers. After they throw him into the pit, after he has to endure a a jail, and, and, and they lie to his father, say that they killed him, and all of those things, he gets to the end of that story and he says, you meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. All of these trials, all these things that you did against me, God meant those things for good. And the reality is that God is going to use the trials that we undergo, which is so important because it gives us a category for them. What category does the world have for pain and suffering? How can they classify that? How can they think about pain and suffering aside from it just being meaningless? That this life is cruel, right? But for the Christian, we have a place to put that pain and suffering. And so the world goes through a season of death or pain or job loss. And where do they put that trial? How are they going to categorize it? It's really no, it's purposeless for them. But the Christian, when he or she is experiencing a trial, we have a category for that. God uses trial. God means these trials and these struggles and battles for good. The world may mean something for evil against us, but God means it for good. I mean, what does Paul say famously in Romans? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we not only have a category for our trials, that they're directly from the hand of God and therefore good for us, but we have a context in which we endure the trials, don't we? And that context is not that we would bear our trials as lone wolves, as though we would try to make it on our own, like all struggling on our own with our various trials, but the context for our suffering is within the local church. This is the context that God gives us to endure the trials. Again, remember who he's writing to. The 12 tribes in dispersion. He's writing to the church. In these trials, where they're not in their, just in their individual trials, they're in a massive trial of persecution altogether. And so there's a context for their struggle. Paul says, bear one another's burdens, doesn't he? And so fulfill the law of Christ. There's just a flood of application here for us. That considering the context in which we bear and endure through trials, we do it together. I mean, God has not called you to a lone ranger Christianity. He has not called you to do life on your own. He has not called you to live apart from Christian community. This is where he calls you to. Where you build the type of relationships with other people in which you care for one another. You love one another. You have the the kind of relationship where you can share each other's burdens. And you're that close. This is part of why we do place such a big emphasis on church membership. Because we think that is vital to have this kind of committed relationship with one another, wherein which we can endure trial together. That we have the mentality that I need you and that you need me. I'm committed to you and you're committed to me. Your burdens are my burdens and my burdens are your burdens. And so in those times of sadness, the the weep with those who weep, we do that. When it's time for the rejoice with those who rejoice, we do that. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is such a key point in that we need each other and we suffer and we rejoice together as a church family. Because when you even think about it very practically, you might be going through something right now that I'm eventually going to get to. I might have gone through something that you're going to be coming to. And for those of you who are older and you have experienced many more trials simply because of your age, how much of an impact can you have on the younger generation and and helping us to endure 
and helping us within our trials. We are in desperate need of one another. The varied nature of trials we're meant to endure are from the hand of God, and they're meant to be shared within the context of the church. But I want you to notice, second, this known fruit of trials. You find this in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I love this because of the way he phrases it. He says, you know. Like, you know this. James assumes the knowledge on the part of his readers, and he knows that they know because they have experienced trial. They know that the testing of their faith is going to produce something within them, and what it's going to produce is steadfastness. Anybody who has experienced trial of any kind knows that the result of testing is going to be a steadfastness. It's going to be an endurance, right? Because anytime you face this kind of testing, it's either one of these, well, I'm out of here. I'm done with God because how can a loving God allow me to go through this kind of a test? But those who have testing and are genuine believers in Jesus, what it's going to do in them is it's going to produce this steadfastness. So the testing of our faith is difficult. The testing of our faith is the means, though, by which God purifies us to build this endurance within us, to bring us to maturity. You know what kind of trial I hate? A treadmill. And when you get on a treadmill and you run for a mile, if you haven't done that in a decade, that's tough. But what happens if you do it the next day? And then you do it the next day. And then you do it the next day. And then you're running two miles. And then you're running three miles. What has happened? That trial of the treadmill has produced something within you. It has produced endurance, has produced steadfastness. And brothers and sisters, the trials of life are meant to produce endurance, steadfastness within you. This is the known fruit of trial. And so if you're in a trial right now, what is happening is a building of your endurance. I'll be the first guy again to just raise my hand and say, I don't like the treadmill, and that's why you don't see me on one. But in our life, there are times where God simply places us onto that treadmill. And you don't get a choice to whether or not you're going to go to the gym or not. Or if you're going to get onto that treadmill in your house that you have your laundry hanging on for the last few years. You don't have a choice. God is just going to set you on it and run. Run and produce that endurance. The Bible calls the Christian life a race, but it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And if you're going to run a marathon, what do you need? Endurance. This steadfastness. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race. That is set before us. The Bible calls us to be steadfast over and over again within the new pages or within the pages of the New Testament, to be steadfast in purpose, to be steadfast in the work of the Lord, to be steadfast in the gospel, to be steadfast in prayer, to be steadfast in persecution, to be steadfast under trial. Again and again, that this life is a race, and in order to run this race in regard to prayer and trial and the gospel and all of the rest of it, there's one indispensable quality that all of you are going to need, which is produced by trials, and that is this endurance, this steadfastness. But no 
notice that it's not just steadfastness being an end to itself, but this steadfastness actually leads us somewhere, which you find in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So within that verse, there is something so small that you'll miss it if you read it too quickly. And it's that little word, let. Let. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because that little word, let, is not a suggestion. That little word, let, is a command. Let steadfastness have its effect. It's in the imperative. So this means that you do not have a choice in this. To not let steadfastness do its work would be sinful. I mean, so often we resist that resistance, don't we? We don't want the pain. We just want the results. But the full effect of the variety of trials that we endure is going to be the completion, this fully rounding out of our character and our godliness, bringing us to maturity. Again, the variety of trials producing a maturity in the variety of virtues that we should all have as Christians. And so the various trials produce steadfastness within us. And then the steadfastness, as it is used in all kinds of trial, it produces the well-rounded, complete Christian. Not a perfect Christian, in the sense that we think about the word perfect, but a complete, well-rounded, symmetrical Christian. God's not going to give you, again, just one kind of trial that's only going to strengthen one area of your life. He's going to give you that spectrum of trials that's going to, to, to impact a spectrum of virtues within your life. He's going to give you all kinds of trials that will give you this steadfastness in so many areas which will make you a fuller Christian than you were before. I know I have all these illustrations for some reason about, and I think it just goes with the context about you know, working out or whatever. I haven't been to the gym in who knows how long. But this is kind of like the person who goes to the gym and all they care about is their beach muscles, right? That they have huge biceps, they have huge shoulders and a huge back, but then you look at their legs and they little, 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 little legs, right? I mean, that's why someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger was so groundbreaking because he had huge everything, right? He didn't have just little legs and a huge upper body. He was complete. He was fully symmetrical. And God's goal for us is not that we would just be strong in one or two areas. That you would have spiritually big biceps and shoulders, but you have weak legs. No, he wants a fully symmetrical, complete Christian. A complete weightlifter would be built all the way around. And God's goal for us is not that we would just be strong in those one or two areas and weak in a bunch of others. But that the variety of trials strengthens a variety of areas in your life. So God's goal for us with trials is for us to be perfect, complete Christians, fully rounded out, strong in all areas of virtue and godliness within our walk. And so we have the varied nature of trials, the known fruit of our trials, the full effect of our trials. But now I want to go back to the beginning of verse 2 again. We have the radical response to trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy? Joy in trial? Like, James has got to be confused, right? How can I feel joy when I'm in a trial? All I want to do is cry. I want to do is lay on my bed and not worry. Why in the world is he saying to have joy? But notice again, this is in the imperative. It's a command. 
count it all joy. There's no wiggle room. There's no choice in the matter. If a, if a trial comes into your life where you can say, well, I'm not going to count this one joy. I'll count this one joy over here. No, any trial within your life is meant to be counted as joy. So God brings this into your life and you are to be joyful about it. To count it, to consider it, the trial to be all joy. And that word all is describing the kind of joy that you have while you're experiencing trials. That it's all joy. That it's sheer joy. That it's pure joy. That it is utter joy. All is indicating, as one author put it, the intensity and the exclusivity of the joy that we should have. It should be a joy and it should be nothing but complete joy. So the point is not, count it all joy, brothers, when you're thrown in prison, simply because you like being thrown in prison. It's not saying to be happy about being thrown in prison, or counting it joy when you're being built, beaten, and you're laughing as you're getting beaten. That is not what he is saying. Joy does not automatically have to equal this outward happiness, but this joy being this rooted and grounded in God satisfaction, knowing that he is the one who has given you this trial. And so the point is that you count it all joy when you meet various trials. Because when you meet those trials, you come with a knowledge. The knowledge mentioned. A knowledge that settles you into remembering that the, what those trials do for you and in you. The trials test your faith, proving if it's genuine or not. And trials produce steadfastness within you, which produces a full effect of completion within you. And so we can have joy in trials because we know now how trials work and how God uses them. This theme of trials is very well within the pages of the New Testament. And I think it had to be because of how quickly the church began to be persecuted right from the very beginning and throughout. I mean, you look at the history of what happened to the apostles. Hung upside down. Boiled in oil. All kinds of terrible things that happened to these men. They needed this word. Romans chapter 5. So similar to James. Paul says, And we rejoice in hope. Of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, listen, this how familiar this is, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul completely agrees with James, doesn't he? Like rejoice in your sufferings. Count it all joy when you are undergoing various trials because it's going to produce endurance, the steadfastness. And then it's going to lead you to a fuller character. And so ultimately, this is a great thing to rejoice in. Your spiritual growth and maturity. But then we also rejoice in our sufferings. Joy in the midst of suffering and trial in the eyes of the world is crazy. And it's something that will mark you out in their eyes to be joyful in suffering. Some of you can probably even think of Christians who have gotten to the end of their life. And they were joyful. They were satisfied in God. And they knew that the trial, whether they were dying earlier or later, that this trial was producing in them, even in those moments, endurance to get to the end of their life. Like Christians who are experiencing the job loss and the financial loss and the death or the miscarriage or whatever it is, they have this joy within that process, knowing that God was doing something in them through that. And the world 
and their unsaved family and friends, your unsaved family and friends, steps back and they say, how can you have joy? How can you even say that you have joy in the midst of trials? It's an incredible testimony to the world. But what I don't want you to think, that even though this is a command to count it all joy, I don't want you to think that you have this ability to conjure up joy within yourself in order to get through the trial. Because the reality is that you cannot produce joy within yourself. Joy is God-given. If you are to be joyful within a God-given trial, it is because the joy you are experiencing is from God Himself. And the reason I know this is because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, then that means the joy to get through a trial must come from the Spirit of God. And so this really comes full circle, doesn't it? The trials we experience are from God. And He doesn't let us go through them alone or expect us to be miserable. He gives us joy. This is the radical Christian response to trials. God-given joy. Brothers and sisters, a trial that doesn't bring you closer to Christ and doesn't teach you something of Him and doesn't make you more mature as a Christian is a wasted opportunity. It's a wasted opportunity to count it as joy and to let that trial do within you what James and what Paul say trials do. When you consider the work of Christ, though, on your behalf, that he was ultimately put through trial, wasn't he? That he was despised and rejected by men. He was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He suffered at the hands of guilty men. He was battered and bruised and crucified on the cross. But the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That there was a great purpose in the trial that Jesus went through, wasn't there? And a purpose that affects every single one of us who trust and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And there is purpose in your trials as well. That the testing of your faith is going to produce a steadfastness. And when that is brought to completion, you will be a more mature, fully complete Christian.